are in Advent. This is week three. And I, I found this quote this week um, from a guy named Leslie Newbegin. He's a missiologist, a guy who studies the church, studies even missions. And he says this quote about Advent. He says, the future is simply that which grows out of the past. Advent means that something radically new comes to meet us, ready to break into our world and turn everything upside down. This is the Advent faith. It's one of the reasons we usually celebrate Advent every, every year, is these things that, that the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, what that brought is the same things we need and want to break into our lives, the same things we want to, to break into our futures. And this is what it means to have an Advent faith. And so with me, would you pray as we begin our teaching that we would experience the joy from the past that Jesus gave, that it would break into our present, into our future. So Jesus, we love you. We thank you um, again for this season. It allows us to just remember and just reflect that there's an aspect of Advent that means coming to prepare ourselves for your arrival once again. That we can experience the things that, that you bring into our life, the things that we truly need and we seek after. May we truly find them in you and not in substitutes. There's so many substitutes to go after, so many things to try to seek after to, just to find those things. But Jesus, you are truly the source of all those things. And so both in this uh, setting and in, in our children's classrooms, our junior high class, may we experience those uh, for ourselves. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as Phil said, there is uh, two weeks left until Christmas, right? Two weeks. And uh, it's kind of scary. And uh, how many love shopping? Do we have any, like, shoppers in here? Like five of you, okay? Um, how many hate shopping? Like, just you'd rather, like, stab yourself in the face. Yeah, so a lot more of you, right? Usually those two marry each other, and then it's, like, a great recipe for uh, love and joy and peace. Um, but... But here's the thing about shopping. Uh, my wife and I, we, we just, we do not like shopping. And there's just a lot of pressure, right? There's this, I think, shopping at the core of even gift giving, right? You just want to bring joy uh, to your, especially if you have young kids. It's like you want to find the gift that makes them just light up and scream at the top of their lungs to bring them joy. And then the other half of, like, shopping is just obligation because, you're like, I have to give this person a gift, you know, those types of things. So there's those two balances of, of out of obligation. But I think the heart of it is you want to bring joy. So there's a lot of searching that goes involved in shopping and, and finding the right gift. And uh, if you, I found this article which kind of highlighted the most popular gifts, the most sought-after gifts that was like, if you could get your hands on these toys, it was like a guarantee that you're going to bring joy, you're going to be, you know, bring like the hero, right, of Christmas. And so I thought it was interesting to go through these decade by decade, and it's just interesting to see how things have changed in the past 70 years. So in the 1950s, all right, uh, Cliff, you'll remember this, um, when you were... Um, um, I, I told Cliff I had to get him, um, but uh, the most popular gifts in the 1950s was like the original Mr. Potato Head, uh, that actually like you needed a potato to actually have a Mr. Potato Head, um, which that just looks appetizing, right? Just imagine giving your like 10-year-old kid uh, this gift. Um, I, I don't think they would like it. And I guess hula hoops were a big deal in the 1950s. If you move in the 1960s, uh, the big popular thing was the Etch-A-Sketch and the original Easy Bake Oven, all right? Um, 
Does anybody remember that? Anybody remember getting that? Yeah, there you go. Did it bring you a lot of joy? Yeah. Awesome. If we move into the 70s, uh, it was like the Kenner Star Wars action figures. I got some cheers for that one. All right. In the original Atari. See, it's just bringing joy, just reflecting on all of these awesome gifts. As we move into the 80s, all right, it was, uh, I guess, the Rubik's Cube. I didn't know, like, this would bring so much joy and celebration. Like, this is fun. This, I'm just going to, I'm going to pray after this, and we'll just, like, we'll end our service. Um, but you had, like, the Rubik's Cube and Cabbage Patch Kids. That's a little scary. And then Transformers, Nintendo, Game Boy, all these things. And then it's my era, my decade, the 1990s, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Tickle Me Elmo. Remember, like, people, like, fought over each other. There's Beanie Babies. And then my least favorite that I still have bad dreams about is, like, this, Furbies. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure, like, that's, like, the spawn of Satan, like, just made these things. And I still have nightmares uh, with those things. Then the 2000s, you had, like, the Wii and the PlayStation. 2010, it's like all things frozen. I don't have pictures of those. But all these things, right? These, if you got these gifts, if you got these toys, you were guaranteed to bring joy. And there's this reality around Christmas. There's this searching to find the right thing. And what we uh, have highlighted this, uh, this teaching is how do you experience joy in a searching world? Because at the heart of all these things, right, I don't think, I mean, some of you, it's, it's good to reflect, but I don't know, many of you are like, when you're, when you're really sad, you get out your Cabbage Patch doll and, like, play with it, right? That there's an, only a, a short brevity when it comes to toys, that at the deep heart of, of Advent and just even in this world and the culture we live in, there's just a deep search for joy, isn't there? Because the, the reality is, uh, in our world, uh, you could, there's just a serious lack of joy. And, and not to depress us even more, but, uh, you know, there's, you could talk about the mental health issues. Uh, just, I read an article, like, even in this past week, CNN did an article where suicide is the second leading cause of death for ages 10 to 18-year-olds, that they are more likely to, to die by suicide than by a car accident. Like, this is kind of the, the world we're in. There's, like, this serious lack of joy, and it's, it's probably not only been heightened specifically in the last two years with the pandemic and all that sort of thing. And again, I don't want to add to the serious lack of joy, but how do we find joy in this kind of world? In a world that's searching for joy, how do we not only find it, but how do we be joy to this world? There's a, a great resource, a great book, if you want to check it out, there's part of, I got to give credit to this book, um, it's a book called The Other Half of Church. It's about Christian community, brain science, and overcoming spiritual stagnation. The authors are Jim Wilder and, and Michael Hendricks. But what they did is they did a study. It's, it's like taking these uh, folks who are actually brain scientists. They study the brain, but they're followers of Jesus. And what part of their work is, is looking at spiritual transformation. Uh, like how, do, how do Christians, as followers of Jesus, how do we grow? And how does like brain science, how do these things kind of come together? And they have two unique um, points that I want to um, bring up to kind of set up for this teaching. Uh, and the, a couple weeks ago when I talked about hope, I talked about that hope was like a fuel tank, but it's a fuel tank for our, our will when we choose certain things. But, but their conclusion, what they have in their studies have found is 
actually God designed our brains to run on joy, that it also is a fuel tank. It's like a car that runs on fuel. Our brains desire joy more than any other thing. And joy helps regulate emotions and and our overall outlook on life. And you have specifically in your brain, you actually have a joy center in your brain. That's what they call it, the joy center. It's, it's, it's uh, at like your front um, orbital prefrontal context, not to get like too sciencey and nerdy, but at the very front you have what they call the joy center. And up until you about your mid-20s, your brain, like after your mid-20s, your brain kind of cements and basically all these things in your formation kind of solidify, but there's one area that continues to grow. Guess what? It's your joy center. It's called neuroplasticity. It continues to be transformed and shaped. And actually, it can grow up until your death. That this is an aspect of your brain that can continue to grow and be transformed. And so at the heart of this is to show that God designed our bodies, designed us to actually experience deep joy, and we're able to grow that capacity. All right? You guys are with me, all right? I didn't lose you in my little science lesson, right? Okay. There's consequences, though, when that joy, that capacity in our joy center, when that gets low, there are consequences to that. Um, What ends up, if you don't have that joy strength, what actually is you spend time searching, trying to overcome that lack of joy. And often it comes in pleasure or pseudo-joy. And that's what they quote uh, here. It says in this book, they say, joy helps us regulate painful emotions when it runs low, we will look to non-relational sources to stop the pain. Soil, or in their, in their language, uh, the joy tank. When that is low on joy, it is primed for growing addictions. When our brain looks for joy and does not find it, we become vulnerable to pseudo-joys. These are substances and experiences that trick our brain to temporarily shut off the unpleasant emotions, but they are non-relational and ultimately unsatisfying. So we have a world that obviously lacks joy, and then we search and find it in these other things that actually don't bring joy. And that, that's literally that's the properties of addiction, uh, whether it's, uh, it's alcohol, drugs, that's what begins that process, is that little reward that you get. But with those sorts of things, the, the reward or the, the pleasure has to increase, and unfortunately the reward decreases, and you have to get more, and you have to get more, and you have to get more. So anyway, so you see the, this tension that we're in, where we have this lack of joy, which also leads to addictions and things that ultimately will lead to more lack of joy. And so how do we find deep joy? How do you ensure that the soil of your brain and your life is enriched with joy? And so we're going to talk about a story in the Bible, a Christmas story. If you go with me to Matthew chapter 2, uh, we're not going to talk about the shepherd uh, the shepherd story. We're going to actually talk about the wise men's story. Um, so if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew 2. We're going to be in, in verse 1. And again, I want to set up a little bit um, for this story. So at the beginning of Matthew, Matthew starts off with this letter, and he kind of starts it off pretty weird, is he's just like genealogy. It's like this person beget this person beget this person. It's just this history of people, and it's all rooted in, in uh, the Jewish people, and it's this lineage leading up to Jesus. And then uh, he, he kind of turns the point in chapter 2, and he, he starts with his story uh, of the wise men. So we're going to read uh, through this, and then I'm going to break it down a little bit in what it means for us to find joy. 
So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When, the, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they said, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. So I'm going to break down this um, scripture, this well-known scripture. I'm sure if you've been in church, you're familiar with the three wise men. But we actually don't know how many. Uh, we just usually say three because of the three gifts. But these were mine, wise men from the east, or magi. Most likely they came from uh, Babylonia, which is about modern-day Iraq. So if you, if you, many think that that trip, that journey they took was about 900 miles. Um, so for context, if you were to leave and to travel to Orlando, Florida, and go to Walt Disney, it's 937 miles. So just a little perspective of the journey that they took. Um, and so, but these were non-Jewish uh, folks. These were non-Jewish men. Most of them think that they were, they were some type of, like, Persian priestly caste, they, they usually a group within a, a people who are magicians or astrologers, like what we kind of think of even as, as scientists. And, um, and so they were searching for this new king. That's the root of their search. That's what began the search is, is they were trying to find this king and they found this star. And that's what began their journey to search and to find. And I think actually there's a, a connection here, a broader picture that these men represent that not just for them but it was actually meant for all of humanity that they represented uh, all of us searching and finding there's this passage in Acts 17 26 through 28 where Paul he's in, a, in this in this Greek um, uh, culture that doesn't know Jesus and even or many of them are not Jews and he, he's telling them and, and preaching about who Jesus is. And he says this to them. He says, from one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek God. And perhaps they might reach out and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Like, there's this reality, I like this scripture, this connection. These people who were 900 miles away from the, the birth of Jesus, they represent this idea that God actually has made us to search for him, to seek him, to, to try and find him. That, and there's this reality that God's not far from each of us. 
And, and th- there's this reality, too, um, that Jesus was not just the Messiah or the king of the Jews, but he's the king of all nations, the whole world. That's, that's why we just picked this theme, for, for the sake of the world, that it represents, again, a broader picture that, that, that Jesus is more than a king for the Jews. He's more than a king for the United States. He's more than a king for, it's like the entire world, this is our Messiah. This is, this is Jesus. This is what the hope we've been looking for. And so, again, I, I think there's just this idea that the wise men represent all of us, that we're all searching and to seek and to find God. And I, I love this, this idea that it says they were overwhelmed with joy. And if you actually look at the literal way it's written, it's, it means that it says they rejoiced with great joy exceedingly. And it says they rejoiced, even that word great means mega. That's where we get the word mega. And exceedingly means uh, done to the max, going all out. So I'm going to kind of read that again. They rejoiced with mega joy, going all out to the max. This is the kind of the joy that they experienced. And so why would they experience this such great joy of this, not, this Jewish little kid, this child, this baby? Why would they have this reaction? Like, I don't know about you, we don't have that reaction very much, uh, only in, like, sports. And it's like, when we have, like, joy to the max, then we end up, like, destroying things. Like, we burn couches and flip cars, and, like, you know, we don't even know how to do this. But to them, there's this deep joy, this overwhelming joy. What could they possibly, what could they find that brought that much joy? What I'm going to argue is, they found joy in the face of Jesus, the, the king of all the world. It was in the face of a little child. They were expected to come to see uh, this king that was, that was set up, but they, what they found was a child. And, and what my point is going to be this morning is this idea that joy is found in the face. This is going to be you're like, what? I'm gonna make, it'll make sense, all right? I promise. But joy is found in the face. And what they did is they found it in the face of the king of the universe who, who became God with us, Emmanuel. And I'm going to break this down because there's two points, uh, both from the book and from the scriptures. So brain uh, science has shown that the face is what brings, that lights up that joy center of, a, of our brains. It's the face. So what they've studied is they've taken infants and babies, and they've been able to see that when, when there's a, um, what, what babies are looking for is a joyful face. That's why, like some of us, we do weird faces and make weird noises when we get in front of, like, babies. And then they, like, if in my case, they just scream and cry. Um, but there's something, in, like, right, there's this idea that babies are searching for this. They are literally scanning, looking for faces of pleasant faces, familiar faces, uh, attached faces that they know. And that's, like, they've shown. And so uh, there's this idea. But in the Hebrew scriptures, joy is also connected with God's face. So I'm going to read a couple scriptures, and I'm going to prove it to you, all right? Psalm 16, it says this, you will make known to me the way of life. It says, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Psalm 21, 6 says, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with the joy of your presence. What's interesting is that word, your presence, is actually your face, the, word, the Hebrew word Panem is, means face. So you literally, you could read it. You will make known to me the way of life. In your face is fullness of joy. 
In your right hand there are pleasures forever. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with the joy of your face. Maybe many of you are familiar with this blessing out of Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you peace. Psalm 27, 8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, O Lord, I will seek your face. Joy is in the face, right? Joy is in the face of God. Emmanuel with us, we have a face that brings us joy. Joy comes at that intersection of our deepest longings met in the face of God. Because the reality is joy is who God is. That's his character. John Ortberg, he's the author, he says it this way. Joy is God's basic character. Joy is his eternal destiny. God is the happiest being in the universe. I'm going to say it again. Joy comes at the intersection of our deepest longings in the face of God. And so at the heart of that, that means joy is relational. That because it's based on a face, that joy is to be relational. It means to be shared with others. And I just want you to think about your most joyful moments in your life. Doesn't include somebody else's face, usually, right? Whether it's a birth of your own child or a celebration, our most joyful moments, they include others. I'm gonna, there's two parables that Jesus um, uh, shared, and I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna read the first one uh, just for sake of time. But in Luke 15, he says this. So he told him this parable. What man among you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. I'm going to read the second one, just I feel prompted to. Or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Just imagine for a minute, you get a phone call. It's like, oh, it's Dan. All right, my good friend Dan. Hey, Dan. What's up, man? Hey, man, I want you to have a party. Uh, I lost a coin, Let's have, like, and I found it. Let's go party. Let's go celebrate. How many of you like, Dan, are you all right, man? Like, it's, it's a coin. But there's this element of this idea that we are meant to celebrate with others, to to when we find the things that we're looking for, to, to call the people and our neighbors and our friends, and, and there should be the celebration of with other people and getting other faces involved. And there's a story, I, could, I mean, you could preach a whole different sermon on how it's God who's searching for us, that there's this element, we were made to search him, yet he is searching for us. And what, what joy that God experiences when one person is found, and we realize we never actually found him, but we found that we were found. Does that make sense? And that causes joy. We were made to search and find, but we also has a God who is searching for us. And so um, I think as a culture, we, 
we don't do this very well, this idea of celebration. Uh, if you've ever been uh, on a mission trip or been into other different cultures or even third world countries, uh, you will see that they have a way of celebration that, like, <laughs> we don't even understand. I think of a story uh, in, I think it was 2017, I took some youth to Haiti. And so the Haiti is the poorest country on this Western Hemisphere. And uh, there was one night where one of the, the guys, Jean-Pierre, he was, he was uh, our translator, and we got to, to build a relationship. He, he actually got a visa to, to go to school in the States and to continue his education. And so, uh, like, right before, as a few days before, or like, I think it was the day before he were to leave, they wanted to have a party for Jean-Pierre. And so, um, so we, he had all his friends, and even, like, uh, there's a sadness, a sorrow, but there was this celebration. We want to celebrate him. And so uh, they had a, a team house, and, and uh, where we went up to was, like, they had a rooftop. And so we go up to celebrate, and right as we are about ready to celebrate, it just starts pouring rain. I mean, like, like just hard, think of the hardest rain you can think of. And so we're meant to have this party. And uh, so they just said, let's, let's go on the roof, and we're going we're gonna to dance and party anyway. And so we bring this, you know, little Bluetooth speaker up there. And so we're all on the roof. We got the music playing, and we are just dancing and celebrating. Nick, he can really dance. Uh, Nick was with me. And uh, this was just this joyful moment. Of, of just pure, it's like there was a sorrow to it, but there was a celebration. And if there's anybody who'd be like, no, I, I don't want to celebrate, it would be like Haitian orphans, right? These are people who, who would have any excuse to say, ah, I don't want to celebrate. But they have found this idea that they can, they can celebrate and be joyful in the midst of really hard times. And I think this is my last aspect of joy, that joy can become a choice, they become an active resistance to, the, to all we face in despair. It, it's, it's a choice to go against the grain of all these forces of despair, cynicism, all the things that are coming against us. Willie James Jennings, he's a professor at Yale Divinity School. Uh, he was sharing in this little um, video that Joel sent me just on this theology of joy. That, that when we choose this active resistance or this protest, that it can... Um, it can become a work, a choice, but then it can move to become a state, and then it can move to become a way of life. And this is what we do, is we need to choose to lean into to joy, even when life isn't going your way. Uh, that, you know, Paul said, you know, he's sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And I get it, like Christmas time can be a hard time for people. Christmas can be, Christmas this season whether you've experienced loss in your family or things aren't as you should be, there's maybe some relational uh, disconnect. And, and there is a pl- there's time to lament, there's time to grieve, there's time to get into those things. But it's also important that we lean into joy, to choose joy, because joy is more than just a feeling. And so, like, there's all these this things that are coming at us in our world, whether it's cynicism. There's, if you read the news cycle or even if you're on Twitter, there is plenty to be despaired about. And there's a stream coming against us with all these things. But it's choosing to go upstream and say, I'm going to lean into this joy. I'm going to live. And my outlook on life is going to be that of God's story, not the story of the world. And I'm going to lean into that story. And here's the thing. We can't do that alone. Like, if you've ever been in a rushing river that's coming against you, 
it's going to wear you out and it's going to take you. The picture I have is, is you need to link arms with community. That's why joy is, is especially important in community because you can navigate those streams. You can go against that. And there's this reality, again, joy is to be shared with others. And what that is is you can experience joy in the midst of distress with community. And so I'm going to move into some application of how you can experience some joy in your life, and I'm going to share one final story. So how do you do this? How do you choose joy? How do you experience the, the face of God in your life? Uh, for me, it's, it's starting uh, each day with gratitude and remembering. So often I just have this practice of jotting down a few things of gratitude. Often, sometimes it's, it's even remembering specific stories and memories like that Haiti story that just brings me back to this place of experiencing joy. Because then I want that to be my outlook on the rest of my day, not all the things that are coming against me. It can transform how I look through my day. And so there's just these to be this personal thing of gratitude and remembering. And yet there's also a call for more communal celebration. And again, like I said, uh, we don't do this well in our culture. Like we do it for birthdays and it's like only for kids. But what if we had like moments of celebration where it's, it's more about like the kingdom and, um, and what God's done in our life. Like I was reading this story uh, in this book called Beautiful Resistance. John Tyson, he shared where him and his uh, friends were at a restaurant and they're um, celebrating and they're eating and they each went around the circle and just shared just celebrations of what God's done in their life, how they've experienced breakthrough in their life, how they see, they've seen all these different things. And, and at the end, they, they had this moment in the middle of this restaurant to like kind of stand up and give a toast to say, like, to the king and his kingdom. And they all like cheered in this thing. And you can imagine, he said, like, everybody in the restaurant's like, what is wrong with those people? They've had a little too much to drink. Um, but what, what he said was uh, shortly after, a waiter came and pulled him aside and said, hey, I'm not, I'm not a Christian, but what I saw there, like, I want what you have. I don't have that. And uh, I just think about that as, as followers of Jesus. What if we were known for our celebrations? Like, what if we were known for our celebrations and how we celebrate what God's done in our life? What if we had spiritual birthdays where it's the anniversary of you giving your life to Jesus and you're saying, hey, friends, family, come over. Let's celebrate what God's done in my life. I've been following Jesus for 10 years. It's my 10-year anniversary. We're going we're gonna to party because I'm, I'm a child of God now. Let's celebrate. What, what if we were known for that? What if our communion times were not just times where it's going through the motions, popping a cracker in, take a shot of juice, yay. What if these were moments of celebration where we say, look what Jesus has done for us. And people who don't know Jesus or are checking Jesus out, they walk into this place and go, wow, this is a place of joy. This is a place. They have something that I, that I want. I think we could do that. He, John Tyson in that book, Beautiful Resistance, he says this, cynicism is killing our nation. It's destroying our hearts. It's putting us in a place where we cannot appreciate the joy that comes from the good news we have been given. But God has an antidote to cynicism. It's his presence, I'd add there, his face. His redemption and his fullness of joy. When we take time to celebrate, whether personally or communally, we are bringing the glory of God into the brokenness of the world around us. We're accurately, accurately representing the God we serve and offering tangible grace to the world. 
As Paul so perfectly wrote, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May celebration overflow in your life and resist the cynicism we face today. What I love about that, he, he pulls this idea that it's in our joy that we can bring joy to a searching world. It's, it's our joy that can be joy to a broken world. And so that third aspect is bringing joy to a searching world. There's this idea we've called to bring joy to a searching world. There's, if this is true, all of humanity is searching for God. And if it's also true, God is searching for them. We just get to bring that to light as his followers of Jesus. We just get to put that into show, hey, God is searching for you. It was great. Mike uh, Palmer, he came in this morning, our pre-service prayer, just all jacked up. He was full of overwhelming joy because on his way here, he stopped at a gas station, asked to pray for somebody, which led to a moment where he got to, to pray for a lady who just got touched by the, by the, by the Holy Spirit and by God. And uh, he just got to bring her joy just by being a conduit of joy in what God wants to do. And I think that's what God, and you could see Mike was just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed this morning. He was all happy and he didn't burn anything which is great he didn't over you know flip over a car and so here's another opportunity is on saturday we, we uh, our, our food pantry is we're doing a christmas outreach we did this um for thanksgiving but we went out and delivered them and for this our food pantry is giving out over a hundred you know christmas meals of a ham and different things and so if you are looking for a way to bring joy to some other people uh, this would be a great opportunity. That's this Saturday from 11 a.m. to 2. There is something about when you are, see joy in another person, it, it's just infectious. And I think I, that's why I want to close. was a, a couple weeks ago. I just had a rough week. <laughs> just one of those weeks, really rough. And uh, I was thankful that I had some friends to talk to, to, to share that, that suffering with and, and get some perspective. And then uh, a couple, two Saturdays ago, we had a refuge Christmas party here. And you had this group of 30 men who are in this uh, treat, you know, this um, addiction treatment, and they're away from their families. They're all together, and uh, we worship together. And there was something about them worshiping. They again had something that I didn't have, but by them continuing to lean into joy no matter their circumstances, I was able to walk out with joy. That it's by their defiance of choosing joy enabled me to walk away with joy. And then last Sunday, I got to, to just volunteer with our junior worship and go upstairs and, and volunteer there. And I was with 20 or so of our first through fifth graders. And they are worshiping with joy. And I, too, walked away more joyful. My joy center grew a little bit because people leaning into joy. And I think that's what God has for us as followers of Jesus. That as we grow our joy capacity, we have these types of experiences that other people, it's, it's contagious. Other people get to experience the joy of the face of God shining on their face. Let's pray.